Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we catch up with a Kharkiv woman we spoke to 10 days ago, who's now made the difficult decision to flee the violence in her city to find safer ground away from Russian attacks. Where is she headed, and what are her hopes for the future? We find out. We learn more about the remarkable discovery this week in Antarctica of the wreck of Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance more than a century after it sunk, and it is in pristine condition. We speak to someone who sailed in Shackleton's wake and followed in his footsteps about why Shackleton's legacy endures. But first, on the second anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring COVID-19 a global pandemic, and as mandates start to be lifted, we look at why so many Canadians believe we've grown further apart as a society in these past 24 months, and if those fences can be mended. Well, today, as you know, marks two years since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. I think most of us remember where we were, at least in the coming days, as the reality of what that actually meant sank in for all of us. We really had no concept of what the next 24 hours, 24 days, let alone 24 months might actually look like. I remember the fear and anxiety of those early days, adapting to remote work, being at home all the time, remote learning, the way everything all of a sudden went very quiet outside, except for that nightly applause for healthcare workers fighting this new killer virus. I look back and I think of the pauses then the getting back together with friends and family, then the variants, Delta and Omicron, sending us all back to the drawing board, kind of. Through it all, we made a lot of sacrifices, and we helped save lives by doing so, let's be honest. We did indeed stick together despite our difference in opinions at times. More than 80% of us got vaccinated. Many of us listened to the rules and followed them, not because we necessarily knew they were right sometimes we'd argue about them at home, but because we needed to believe in the science behind them, even when that science, as it should, meant that those rules sometimes changed. And we did it to protect each other, and it worked. We don't know what lies ahead, but we do know we can, collectively, thank all those who worked so hard to protect us, keep our store shelves stocked, keep our supply chains working, and we can thank each other for protecting each other. According to Johns Hopkins University, the virus has killed more than 6 million people around the world, 37,000 here in Canada. In Britain today, there was a minute of silence to pay respect to the sacrifices made by health and social care workers there. Well, experts are cautiously optimistic that we may have seen the end of these lockdowns and widespread safety protocols, but even now they do leave behind a divisive legacy. We were once all in it together. It doesn't really feel that way now. I saw a survey today that showed the vast majority of Canadians, all ages, men and women, feel like people have been driven further apart over the last 24 months. Four in five say that's the case. So what has driven this sense of apartness over the course of the pandemic? Now that mandates are being lifted, can we find common purpose again? Can we agree even just to disagree? Joining me now is Timothy Caulfield, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy and a professor at the University of Alberta. Thanks for your time tonight, Timothy. Thanks for having me on. I guess just your initial reaction, we're coming up on two years now since most of us were sort of all of a sudden seized with the reality of COVID-19, remote work, vaccine passports, masking. Um, we're now sort of seeing the lifting a lot of these restrictions that came in after the surge of Omicron. Um, it, seemed, it feels like the right time, but there's been so much political pressure. How do you see it? Yeah, it, it is a very interesting time to reflect on on both the policies, you know, as we're seeing these policies unfold across not just Canada, but around the world, but also on on what the evidence says. Um, And so, look, uh, this departure from from the pandemic lockdown has been ragged, you know, let's call it that, you know, not every jurisdiction is, is using the exact same approach. And I think that that creates some confusion. In addition to that, I think it's really important to emphasize that, look, you know, the evidence about when we should be lifting these restrictions is not crystal clear. And I think that allows a high degree of politicization, even even when we see um, almost uniform agreement agreement in North America anyway, that we're going to start start to lift uh, many of the major uh, pandemic policies. So I, I think we're seeing that divisiveness. And by the way, there is research to back that up. There's been a lot of surveys, as you can imagine, follow it really closely. 
that, that highlight the degree to which Canadians in particular are, are divided uh, on, for example, lifting mask mandates, uh, moving away from vaccine, vaccine mandates and passports. So even at, at this moment in time when there, there's hope about the pandemic, we're seeing that, that, that division. What do you think? I mean, I think we've seen a whole political movement built up around that division to some extent. How much has that surprised you? If you take yourself back 24 months to the to the heady pre-COVID times when we sort of saw there was an anti-vaccination movement, obviously, but it seems to become so much more entrenched now in 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 politics in general, both here and in the U.S. How is how has that happened? Yeah, you know, if I could, I often often reflect on that. Actually, you know, imagine imagine the world in February of 2020, and, and I study misinformation, and we got a grant almost immediately, you know, to to look at misinformation in this context. And despite that, I was surprised by the amount of misinformation and how quickly it became about ideology and polarization. In part, I think. It's because American politics became relevant very, very quickly. You know, Trump was still president at the time. There were a lot of really interesting studies that highlighted highlighted the degree to which Trump and and the politics that surround Trump helped to shape the COVID narrative in the United States. And there's been research since then that have highlighted the degree to which that that narrative, those narratives had an impact on on the discourse in, in Canada, especially in the context of social media, right? You know, there's absolutely no doubt that that's helped to shape how we talk about COVID here. So you, you probably know this, early days in, in Canada, um, there was research that showed that, you know, Canadians are pretty unified. You know, we really were. It was like, we're in this together, we're going to beat this pandemic. But very quickly, it became about about politics. And, and right now, let's say over the last six months, Holy cow, it's almost entirely about politics and ideology. And if you look at the research, it's the Venn diagrams overlap almost exactly, right? Almost exactly where you have, you know, those on the far right being against uh, the restrictions, being, being against, uh, ma- you know, masks and vaccines. And, uh, and, and by the way, also embracing misinformation. Um, it, it, the overlap is, is incredible. And I want to be really careful here. If I may, I know I'm going on a little bit long, but I want no, to be no, careful. Ahead. I'm not picking on an ideology because this happens across the ideological spectrum, depending on the topic, right? Depending on the topic, you see this kind of ideologically motivated embrace of a of misinformation. But in the context of COVID, especially masks and vaccines, that's what we've seen. I was going to say because you know I think when we look back at this with the with the benefit of hindsight, we'll see that at some points in time there were restrictions in place that weren't necessary or didn't work. Um, the idea was that we had to trust public health officials or trust the science, so to speak. And what seems um, like might be one of the lasting legacies, and perhaps an unfortunate lasting legacy of this whole experience, is that the trust in public health officials now seems to have waned in certain parts of our society. Yeah, I I think this is going to be, um, I I agree with you. And I I like to put an optimistic spin on it. So let's put a glass half full spin on it. Let's let's put it this way. You know, hopefully we're going to learn how important having trustworthy recommendations are, right? You know, that we we need to make sure that when we're making public health recommendations, that they are presented in a way that allows the, the public to trust those recommendations. And I think part of that is being honest about the uncertainty. Right, being un- honest about the the how fluid the science is that is underpinning the recommendations. So when inevitably the recommendations might have to be ad- adjusted, the public's ready for that. Right, they they appreciate that. Okay, uh, you know, two months ago you told us you made this recommendation, given the existing evidence. Now that evidence is different because the evidence has has evolved, and we saw that with masks, for example. Uh, you know, it's interesting because masks, I think, are real are going to be this case study that we're analyzing for years because, you know, we started with one recommendation. You'll remember out of the gate, the recommendation was masks weren't necessary. In fact, might be harmful. And that was uniform and based, by the way, on scientifically plausible justifications, you know, about behavioral compensation, touching your face, the idea that they might do more spread more than, you know, than they, than they stop the spreading. Um, 
Very quickly, a body of evidence emerged to tell us that masks were helpful. We saw the, the, the recommendations change. But then the recommendations became more nuanced, right? We re- recognized that maybe outside, you know, the data on being outside has been, been amazing uh, in the sense that, that it's not as risky when you're outside, right? So, and we saw the evidence around ventilation, et cetera, evolve. So it's, it is going to be a really interesting case study to get a sense of how the public health recommendations matched up with what the science was, was actually actually telling us. But I, if I, again, could <laughs> go on and say one more thing that I think is sure. super, super important. One of the things we're seeing right now, and, and it is largely ideologically driven, is this kind of revisionist history, right, uh, of, of what the science said. Let's be crystal clear here. Masks were and are a vital public health tool. That's what the research tells us, right? Um, let's also be crystal clear that the vaccines were incredibly successful, saving hundreds of thousands of lives. A study came out today in science, around 700,000 people saved by these vaccines, right? And you, and you get this revisionist history where they're trying to say, oh, we didn't need the vaccines, we didn't need um, masks, we didn't need to have phys- you know, physical distancing, et cetera, et cetera. That's just not, not right. I'm speaking with Timothy Caulfield, the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy and Professor at the University of Alberta, and also the author of a book called uh, Relax, A Guide to Everyday Health Decisions with More Facts and Less Worry. And that seems like a very opportune time to discuss that because I feel like there are going to be a significant number of people who are going to be worried about mandates being lifted, and we should discuss that, and we will do so after this. I'm back now with Timothy Caulfield, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, professor at the University of Alberta, and uh, author of the recent or relatively recent Relax, A Guide to Everyday Health Decisions with More Facts and Less Worry. One of the things that I was struck by over the last little while as mandates were being lifted, much to the celebration of some, but certainly much to the horror of others, is how are people going to react to this now that these mandates have been lifted when in some ways it was kind of a security blanket for for many people uh, to be able to wear a mask? It sort of felt like you were protecting yourself against the unknown. And now that's been taken away. What do you think the impact will be? And how should people uh, reassess, you know, reassess what they're going to do going forward? I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this social norm evolves. Don't you think? I mean, uh, uh, I, I went up to dinner last night so here we have Edmonton, Alberta, just lifting their uh, their mask mandates. And uh, my wife and I, who's a physician, we decided, you know, we're going to wear we're going to wear masks still, right? Um, going into stores, going into restaurants. So we wore a mask going into the restaurant. We met our friends there, had a lovely evening. I got up to go to the bathroom um, a couple times, uh, I, and then we got up to leave. We didn't put our masks back on, and it wasn't because. We didn't think we should. It's just this, it, it left our mind, right? And it shows you how quickly your surroundings and social norms, no one else had their masks on, social norms can impact your behavior. So you have, I, I think that we're going to see that kind of evolution. And um, uh, I do think there's going to be a cohort of individuals that are going to want to continue to wear the masks. And I, I don't think we should shame them, right? I think if this is what they need to do to feel comfortable, then we should accept that. Um, but we are going to see, I think, for the foreseeable future, this kind of um, polarized public behavior, because I've also seen the opposite, right, where you have people sort of, def- as soon as the, the mandates were lifted, that it was like the science had changed right. <laughs> overnight, and they're defiantly not wearing their masks. So I, I think we're going to see that for for a bit. Um, and uh, going forward, where we land, it's going to be interesting. I, I suspect it's going to be we're going to still, masks aren't going away. I think we're going to see people wearing them on, on planes. And I also think we're going to see people wearing them in situations where they're, and I hope, I hope this is the case. I hope this is the case where individuals are immunocompromised or they're individuals who are at increased risk. Um, so I, I think masks are going to remain, uh, but uh, in a very different kind of format. I certainly hope you're right. I hope there is a level of respect out there. But I know that people who felt that they were made to wear masks and felt, you know, people who either were denied, couldn't get into a restaurant, couldn't get onto public transit for whatever reason, there's, there must be anger out there now for people who felt like they were, uh, where the shoe was now on the other foot, so to speak. Do you think that's going to manifest itself? 
I, I do. I do. And the other other aspect of that of that story is this idea that somehow that they won because the the masks uh, mandates are being taken away when you know that I always I joke that it's like someone who's uh, against wearing a winter jacket, you know, they're against big coat, the big coat industry, right? And then when spring comes, they go see we won, right? You know, it's, you know, that's, that's not the case at all. Everyone I, I know, and I work very, very closely with the public health policy community in Canada, we all knew that and hoped for an evolution in the public health policies, you know, no one was saying forever, right? Um, uh, so I, I do think we need to try, try, try to have a level of respect and not shame either either parties uh, in in the space right now. We've got to move forward. The one thing that I find really interesting is, you know, we're probably not done with COVID yet. At least that doesn't seem like it's the case. If you look at, say, somewhere like Hong Kong these days, it's crystal clear that we're not done. How much room have governments given themselves now if they have to start bringing some of these things back? Not a lot, I think. I think it's an excellent point. And that goes back to the comment I made about revisionist history. You know, one of the things I'm worried about is if we don't combat that revisionist history, that somehow, you know, we didn't need the masks, that the there was, you know, ridiculous overreach by government, that the vaccines weren't necessary, that it's not going to give us the flexibility to say, you know what, we have another spike. Well, I'm, I'm knocking wood. Hopefully we don't. Yeah. Um, but if another if another uh, spike comes that are, are we going to be able to motivate individuals to go back to those? I think it's going to be really tough. I really do think it's going to be tough given the current uh, current environment. As a last question, when you look back over the two years, the back and forth, the updates, the passports, the, the masking, the not masking, masking, was it all worth it? Yes, it was all, all worth it. Did we, did public health officials get stuff wrong? Yes. Uh, but mostly, mostly this was science working, right? The, the vaccines alone were a scientific miracle. Timothy Caulfield, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. We've been talking a lot the past few days about cities that have been under siege from Russian forces. Mariupol in the deep south and the south on the Azov Sea has been obviously the one people have been paying a lot of attention to. But Kharkiv as well, Ukraine's second biggest city, population was 1.5 million people, has also been under Russian siege for weeks now, for the most of the war, actually. Um, it's still under government control tonight, but Russian attacks have been relentless. The city's historic downtown core has been all but decimated. It's hard to find food. Heat is out in many places. It's cold. On Tuesday, we spoke to Maria Avdieva, who is in Kharkiv, and she's been taking her phone each morning and documenting the devastation. She wanders out onto the streets simply with her phone and sort of talks to it. Here's how she described her hometown today. Hello, Maria Avdieva, Kharkiv, Ukraine, 11th of March. Uh, this is the area behind Kharkiv Regional State Administration that was heavily bombarded and uh, distracted because of the shellings. Uh, what you see now used to be one of the city business centers, now completely in ruins. And, uh, well, all over the place you see that the, there is the... There's the, the signs of the war going on right here. And today it is so cold outside, minus eight, and freezingly cold. So this is what is Kharkiv now today. So hard to see it like this. But still, you see the Ukrainian flag is here. So that means that we are winning this war. And we will stand and win. Slava Ukraina. Maria Avdieva in Kharkiv today. Minus eight. You can hear her feet, a sound that many Canadians know so well. You hear the crunching of the snow as she walks, which always tells you it's cold. Well, we first spoke to English teacher Svetlana Prestupa in Kharkiv 10 days ago. She, her sister, and her mom at that point had retreated to the hallway of their 16th floor apartment, lying on the ground, trying to stay away from windows because of the risk of flying glass as those Russian attacks continued and intensified. Here's how she described life 10 days ago. We tried to grab our coats and run outside to buy some food, 
But when we just open our door and step out, we hear the bombing again and we run back to the flat. So it's, it's really hard to say when it's going to happen next. In, in a minute, in an hour, we don't know. And, it, and it's even yeah. scary to go to the bathroom or to the kitchen to grab some water or food because we don't know whether we sh- should go somewhere near the windows and risk our lives or maybe stay, keep on staying in the corridor and lying and covering our heads. Well, we've kept in touch with Svetlana since then. Um, and we know that she made the very difficult decision to leave her city and put a little bit of distance between themselves, her mom, her sister, herself, and those Russian attacks. So how did they make their move? What now? What next? I'm really happy to welcome Svetlana Prostupa back onto the show to give us an update. Svetlana, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Uh, I really appreciate it. Hello. Thanks for having me again. Tell me what the last, uh, we spoke to you 10 days ago. I I, I can only imagine, I can't imagine what the last 10 days have been like, but it sounds like you're somewhere quieter. Uh, How how have those last 10 days been and and what did you make, how did you make your decision to go? Um, We started thinking about uh, going somewhere, running away uh, sometime before. We actually did. Uh, but I guess I remember that awful night. It, it's hard for me to say what day or date that was because everything is really messy in our heads right now. Uh, but we had a really, really scary night. We could hear the planes flying all over our district, our house. The sounds were really mm, loud and scary. And I guess that was the time when I said, guys, we need we need to go because our dear Kharkiv is being destroyed and there are less and less buildings left and the chance of staying alive is getting down. So we, we need to save our lives because we really want to see Ukraine's victory and keep on living here. We really love our country and we want to see what's going to happen next for it. Yeah, I, I, I played that, that clip of Maria Avdieva earlier. We spoke to her earlier in the week uh, and just it, minus eight today, it's cold. Um, I can imagine, you know, the chance of having heat, it would have been a very tough time to stay, to stay there. How did you, how did you manage to leave? I imagine there's so many, we saw pictures of Kharkiv's train station. It was packed. How did you manage to get out? Uh, the train stations uh, were and probably still are really, really crowded. And because of my big family, we have many people, my mom who walks with a cane, our pets uh, whom we couldn't abandon for sure. Uh, we decided that the train isn't really a good choice for us because we, we wouldn't survive the train. Uh, so we found some volunteers some brave, amazing people from a city which is four hours away from Kharkiv. They just started evacuating people uh, So from that city, which was uh, by that moment uh, quite safe. Uh, people rode, d- drove to Kharkiv, uh, which wasn't still is really dangerous, and they got people uh, and drove them out of Kharkiv. So we used uh, such volunteers' help uh, and drove in small buses with them. It must have been difficult. I mean, I can't imagine. It must have been a difficult decision to make, ultimately. I know you left for all the right reasons, but it's always, if we've spoken to other people too, it's always hard to leave home. It really is. It was a hard decision. I believed that I would stay. I really wanted to stay, but I got totally frightened that night and that that was i guess the right decision but it breaks my heart that many of people i love i know are still there and i'm really worried about them yeah you told me last time and we spoke that you would text each other every morning or text each other all the time just to make sure everyone was okay are you still doing that yeah, sure, sure. And like with, with everybody, all of my students, all of my friends, doesn't matter which city, 
we are from and we're constantly in touch asking, trying to support this is really good spirit it it really cheers us up yeah, I remember you, of course, you're an English teacher. And I remember you, one of the things that struck me so vividly about the last time we spoke is that you described the night before, the Wednesday night before the Thursday morning when all this awfulness began, having a normal class, teaching them laughing, and then walking home and then not seeing them again. Have you managed to stay in touch with, with any of your students? Yeah, sure. We are like texting and talking. Uh, some of the teachers from our school uh, have started offering free classes to like get back to some kind of normal. Uh, but many of the students are still in Kharkiv or they are moving somewhere. So f- for some it's possible and some of the students are learning again and trying to feel the normal life. But many had to decline because they just don't have the opportunity they are still hiding how is everybody with you how is your how is your mom it must have been really hard for her too to to have to go it is uh, hard for her and it actually is hard for all of us but she's trying to be strong uh it's stressful the the road is stressful we traveled from kharkiv to the first city which is close to us and then we had one more uh, like jump from that city to the central part of Ukraine now we're here in the central part and traveling is stressful and living somewhere not knowing whether you're going to have a place to stay tonight is really hard we miss home we, we want to go back home and we hope that it's going to happen soon, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, I think everyone watching hopes that that will be the, the, the end result as well. Um, when we come back, I, I really want to ask you about what your what your plans are. I, I know it must be difficult to make plans right now, but just where you are and, and where you hope to be uh, in the next few weeks. And, and you've started mentioning that already, how difficult it is to, to be on the move. But millions, millions of people are on the move right now. And we, it's, it's um, you know, to, it, it it's such a difficult thing to have to do, but I'm wondering if you're getting the kind of support you need, what we can do to what others can do outside to help and what you'd like people to know about, uh, about the situation you find yourself in. And we'll do that right after this. I'm speaking with Svetlana Prestupa, an English teacher from Kharkiv who's left Kharkiv with her family um, after some very dangerous and scary nights, uh, along with, I gather, hundreds of thousands of others. I think uh, Maria Andrieva, uh, Avdieva was telling me that uh, of 1.5 million, at least 500,000 have already left the city. What's it been like in terms of just the amount of help you're, you can get once you've left, once you're moving? Are you able to access help? Um, people can get help, I guess, all over Ukraine now because our local volunteers are doing everything they can. We receive a lot of help and support from uh, the world, uh, the countries that support us. Um, so it, it is possible to get some help. There's lots of uh, information about where you can go, who you can call. Uh, we haven't used that for now. Uh, we are trying to like do everything we can and stay, remain independent for some time and let other people who are in more need than us use that help but who knows maybe we'll also uh, have to ask for help that's a really interesting um it's really interesting you bring that up this idea of just staying independent because you feel like there are others who are in in worse positions than you are i'm sure you've seen it even yeah sure i've, I've seen pictures of people like 60 people lying in one small room um all in on all on the floor so this is of course good that they have where to stay there in a safe place in a warm place they have food but of course it's not okay in the 21st century when people don't live in their homes but live yeah. like I, I even don't know what what to yeah. say here 
No. Are you sleeping okay? Are you feeling are you feeling any better now that you're that you're somewhat not right in the middle of it? Yeah, thank God we can sleep now, but every loud voice is a huge concern for me because I start uh listening closely like what what was that uh, and I I guess I'm going to have this problem for many years after that because every sound uh sounds like a rocket a plane and I'm really scared that this city we're in now it's quite quiet for now but who knows when the bombing can start here yeah, as that well must be, that must be a kind of, I guess it, it's just a, a reminder of just how vigilant how hyper vigilant you'd been that whole time even when we spoke to you when you were back home in, in, in Kharkiv in your apartment when you look at the at what you might like to do or might want to do going ahead you spoke I think a bit maybe of of maybe going to another country at least temporarily is that still something that that you feel is an option for you uh, our family is trying to discuss our like plans, and for now, two of us would like to stay in Ukraine, and two of us would like to try and go temporarily for uh, to another country. Uh, I personally would like to try going somewhere because I would like to find a safe place where I can start making money because when the war finishes, uh, Kharkiv is going to need uh, me to restore and rebuild it. I would really love to help my country. And for that, I guess now I need to be useful and do something. I can imagine that's such a difficult conversation to try to, to try to figure out whether to stay or to go because it's it, it's so emotional. It is, right. So you, what does what does what does a day look? It's it's morning in, in in where you are now. What does today look like for you? What will you do? Actually, for the first couple of days when we arrived, it was we were busy with some like organizational matters, where to find a place to stay, where to buy food, to sleep a bit. So these were like kind of useless from the safe point of view days, but necessary for us to keep on living and maintain our bodies. Yesterday, I had a great chance to host the first two classes since the 24th of February. I was really glad to do that. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. And today, I would really like to find a volunteer um, place and go and help and do something I can, maybe cook or sort uh, clothes or whatever is needed. I guess this is my plan for today. Just to keep busy and to feel like you're you're doing your part, I guess. Yeah. Svetlana Prostupa, thank you so much for speaking with us again. It's lovely to hear that you're in a safer place. Um, and obviously, we, we wish you safety, health, and uh, and and purpose. Uh, as this continues, and um, we hope to get some updates from you again to find out how you're doing. And we're all obviously thinking of you here and hoping that everything's okay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate what you're doing, your support. Thank you. You may have caught wind of this this week. A remarkable discovery far beneath the ice-covered waters of Antarctica. Scientists found and filmed one of the greatest ever undiscovered shipwrecks 107 years after it sank. And to add even more wonder to the whole story, the ship is almost perfectly intact and it's upright. Endurance Shackleton ship was spotted in the Weddell Sea at a depth of 3,000 meters. For over two weeks, some Marines had combed the area. Uh, looking for targets, they finally found the wreck on Saturday. It happened to be the 100th anniversary of Shackleton's funeral. And since then, they've done some photography, looked at it. Here's historian Dan Snow, who's part of the Endurance 22 expedition. I'm on Endurance 22, the expedition to find Shackleton's lost shipwreck endurance, said to be the most inaccessible shipwreck in the world. It's sunk 3,000 metres below the surface of the Weddell Sea, an ice-bound sea, freezing cold temperatures, very, very difficult to operate. 
And yet, I'm glad to say that Endurance 22, on board the Agulhas 2, you can see our ice-breaking ship there, uh, yesterday acquired a target on the seabed uh, on Saturday the 5th of March. It was a hundred years to the day since Shackton was laid to rest in his grave in South Georgia. A strange coincidence. We've spent the last 24 hours looking at that target. We've done a laser scan. We've used 4K photographic imaging, uh, looking at it with cameras. And it is the wreck of endurance. It's sitting proud on the seabed, on its keel, uh, in one piece. It's a coherent wreck. It's much as it looked in those last photographs taken by Hurley, the expedition photographer, in November 1915. I keep thinking today about those men who were watching Endurance sink, and, and by the way, it sank about, well, it lies about 300 metres in that direction, just beneath that ice flow there, 3,000 metres to the bottom. So I'm only 300 metres from the spot on which uh, Endurance uh, lies. Uh, and I keep thinking about uh, the men who were there that day. They watched it sink, and they thought it was the end of the story of Endurance. They watched the ice close over her, and it appeared so final. But today we've proved that actually that wasn't the end, it was a hiatus, and the story of endurance continues. Historian Dan Snow, they're part of that Endurance 22 expedition that found Shackleton's lost ship. You can hear the penguins in the background, so you know where he is. Few people know that part of the world as well as my next guest does, let alone other Canadians. Dave German has led dozens of exp expeditions and tours to Antarctica, sailing in Shackleton's wake, walking in his footsteps. He he's even led a few IMAX teams there to do documentaries about Shackleton's odyssey. He's also the owner of Fathom Expeditions, and he joins me now. Welcome to the show, Dave German. A pleasure to be here. Thanks for giving me a shout. Just to put this into perspective, the discovery or the, redis or the rediscovery, I guess we kind of had a somewhat good idea of where it was, but the idea that it's been found, how big a deal is that? Well, I think for folks who are familiar with the story of Sir Ernest Shackleton and the HMS Endurance, his ship, uh, this is a huge find. It's very exciting. Uh, where it was found itself and deep in the Weddell Sea is an inhospitable cold environment where the ice really calls the shots, whether it's pack ice. Uh, or tabular icebergs that are the size of city blocks. A ship has to contend with this just to get into position to look for Cerna Shackleton's ship. And it appears, from all accounts, that they have done so and have found it, which is very exciting for everybody who likes Shackleton and the story of the endurance. Tell me a bit about it. I gather it's upright and nearly intact, preserved in many ways. Uh, is that surprising? It, it is a bit surprising because the ship succumbed to the forces of the ice. It was crushed as the ice uh, pushed in against it, and they had very thick timbers of green wood uh, that formed the planks of the vessel. Um, but that said, most likely it just filled with water and went straight to the bottom and landed as it is today. So seeing the footage, that was what really struck me, especially the name on the stern of the vessel. Yeah, you could actually, it, it's as if it had been sat there almost preserved in ice for, for the last 107 years. Tell me a bit about, uh, and you know this story so well, tell me a bit about, about Sir Ernest Shackleton and, and what his vision was and how he found himself to be, how he found himself escaping a sinking ship in such inhospitable territory more than a century ago. Well, it was the golden age of exploration and Shackleton had this dream uh, going on his third expedition to cross uh, the Antarctic. And he was taking his ship Endurance uh, down deep into the Weddell Sea where he would get to Vassal Bay land at the very bottom of the Weddell Sea. And from there he would cross the Antarctic on foot via the South Pole. Uh, it didn't work out when the ship got stuck in the ice and the ice, drift, the ice took the ship around, eventually crushing it as men ended up going onto the ice, salvaging what they could before the vessel went down. They salvaged three lifeboats uh, and they outfitted those lifeboats. They put all that they could carry in them. They lived on the ice until it eventually broke up. And then they got in the boats and they rowed uh, to the last piece of land along the Antarctic Peninsula, a place called Elephant Island. I've been there quite often. If you can land, you're lucky. Uh, the, it's just in the middle of the Drake's Passage and it gets pounded by winds and waves and ice as well, and it's very lonely. So they found the last piece of land. Nobody was going to rescue them there. Shackleton realized that. So he outfitted the James Caird as one 22-foot lifeboat, and he looked across the sea to the nearest inhabited piece of land, and that was 700 nautical miles away in an island called South Georgia. Anyway, as 
he did uh, brave the waters uh, in this small boat that had rocks for ballast and five other men. The fact that they eventually uh, made it alive and intact to the shores of South Georgia was a huge thrill. But unfortunately, he was on the wrong side of the island where uh, nobody lived. So to get to the population, he had to go up and over a, a series of extreme mountains, um, which he and two other men did successfully. And they finally got back to civilization when they heard the call or the whistle of the whaling station to wake the men. And he went down, he shook hands, he, he started to mount a rescue. It took five tries to get back to Elephant Island to rescue his man. But eventually, uh, the ship Yelko from Chile uh, managed to get in there and rescue every single man. Uh, so it's an incredible tale. It's very inspiring. It's a story of teamwork, leadership, goal setting, and just bringing everybody up, rising tide raises all boats. And uh, Shackleton achieved this a long time ago, over 100 years uh, since, more than that, actually. And it still inspires people today. You've been there. I mean, it's one thing to do that even in hospitable territory. Just how inhospitable is this area? Well, the Drake Passage is one of the rougher bodies of water. It lies between South America and Antarctica. And uh, people familiar with it refer to it as the Drake Shake or the Drake Lake. Uh, Drake Lake being calm conditions where it's fairly reasonable. However, when the Drake shakes, it can get up to uh, storm force or 80 knots, up to 100 knots, actually. And because there's no land, the waves get bigger and bigger as they go further in on, along the sea, creating massive swells that in a bad storm can actually be curling with white water. So... Uh, the forces are pretty interesting from that perspective. And then you throw in extreme cold, snow, isolation, lack of communication. Uh, there are a lot of challenges. And we always say in Antarctica, you need to dance with Mother Nature. You can never push your way through. Um, so a good dancer usually can have success on an expedition. But if you get too cocky uh, or you bring your ego along, thinking that you can just go and do it, you might find yourself getting into a bit of trouble over time. And you've been doing this. You've been following or, or at least inspired by Shackleton for, for decades now. I've been uh, in the business since 1997. And I remember the first time I read the story of Shackleton and the Endurance. I was in the lower bunk of a four-person quad cabin. Uh, actually, it was the upper bunk because I remember <laughs> the, the chef beneath me was smoking while I was reading the book in this in the middle must of the be, must passage. be a while ago yeah exactly it was a while ago and it was in the Drake's passage and every single page turning I felt like I was going into a world of the explorers and I would wake up the next day I would find myself in this incredible environment of pristine nature ice caps and icebergs and it was just truly inspiring and it became very real you can't go to Antarctica without entering a world of the explorers and it really started to gravitate with me, the whole story. And I started setting bigger goals. I eventually went and followed Shackleton to the island of South Georgia, where he's buried. And when I started that two-person unsupported expedition, I sat by his grave at the very beginning to give him a tribute and thank him, because without the motivation and the inspiration of his story of endurance and how he had his goal and he continued forward, I never would have found myself in that faraway place beginning adventure of a lifetime. For listeners who don't know, he actually did return again. And that's when he, I gather, that's when he, he, he died there. Uh, he was going down on his expedi another expedition afterwards, and he passed away. Right. And they were turning back to go to Uruguay, but his wife sent a telegram of some sort saying, no, he'd rather be buried in South Georgia. And that's where they buried him. That's where he stayed. I'm speaking with Dave German, one of the people who knows Antarctica better than almost anyone, a man who's sailed in Shackleton's wake, walked in his footsteps. We're talking about the discovery this week of Shackleton's ship, uh, Endurance, uh, that is about 3,000 meters down in the Waddle Sea in Antarctica, almost perfectly preserved. We have seen images of it this week. It is spectacular. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about why the Shackleton story still captures the imagination of so many. Uh, proof positive this week, the, the international coverage and reaction to this discovery. That's coming up. I'm back with Dave German, 
owner of Fathom Expeditions, um, also a man who spent a lot of time in the very same parts of the world uh, in Antarctica where uh, Shackleton's endurance was discovered, uh, or at least images of it are, 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 have been circulated, uh, showing the ship intact. You can read endurance on the back of it. It's spectacular. I understand, and you can explain this, I guess, I understand that it is, in fact, uh, it's, it's a preserved site. You can't touch it. Is that right? Yeah, that was almost, that gave me the biggest sigh of relief. Now that it's been found, it gets categorized as a historical artifact under the Antarctic Treaty, and it's fully protected, which is just great news. That means it will probably stay intact in that cold, cold water deep down in the darkness without being disturbed. And I think that's great news. What can we learn from from the from what's 3,000 meters below, below the sea or below the ice right now, what do you think we can learn from the endurance? What's, what questions are there still to ask that the, that the ship itself may answer? Well, there are a few questions, I suppose. Things were left on board the vessel. Frank Hurley, who is the photographer from Australia, had plates and plates. Uh, the story goes that Shackleton made him destroy the ones that he couldn't take with him so that he wouldn't be tempted to sneak back and get aboard the ship. Uh, but who's to say it might be still on there? Also, lessons. This this ship is very much a symbol. I think it, it's a reminder of this great story. It, it can be uh, something that uh, prompts people to learn, to read the story, and to maybe take the lessons and the exciting adventures and to put it onto their own lives in terms of goal setting and trying to do things that they really care about and forming a team around them of great people and then just committing to those one those important ideas. We're all going to have icebergs in front of us as we travel through our lives, but the story of Shackleton might help us navigate through some of those icebergs to get to the other side. I suppose we all feel like our ship is being crushed by sea ice at some points in our lives. Um, to, to you know, As a great metaphor, what do you think it is about the Shackleton story broadly that still inspires such fascination? I think... It was just the daunting, daunting challenge that he was faced with and also the ability to adapt and how to cope with challenges. Um, he started out with a huge goal and he knew he was going to have to go in deep into the ice. Um, but he had a great team, Frank Worsley, for example, just an amazing person. And he depended on those people at the right time and the right place to do the right job. And we can all learn from that by when we surround ourselves with the people that we need to get the job done in our own lives. So I, I think that's a nice lesson that can be drawn from it all. Um, the teamwork component and just leadership. Instead of trying to bull your way through things, you have to work with the team members and ensure that everybody goes along uh, with the program. To, otherwise, there can be discontent and things can break apart and it can become very troublesome. As also, seen, just to, sorry, sorry, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, and also just that everybody, you have to make sure that the strong members, the weak members, everybody's feeling valued. Uh, and again, that just keeps the team together. Uh, good communication uh, so that people know what their tasks are, also very good. So a lot of applications for a lot of different things, whether it's business or personal lives, I think. And I guess at the time in 1907, Antarctica was still rel relatively unknown territory. I mean, it had been, it wasn't completely unknown, but it was still quite a frontier. It still is. Well, even today, we're learning more and more all the time um, in Antarctica, and it's changing rapidly as well. Um, but back in that era, the people, this, these explorers would be taking off for a year or two years of their lives. Uh, one team went to the other side of the Antarctic to meet Shackleton. Um, they were gone, and they didn't even know what happened to him for some time. So there were definitely challenge operating there. But I think people like Amundsen and Shackleton, once you've been there and you've experienced it, you start to love it. And it gets into your heart and bones. And once you finish one expedition, you just can't stop thinking about the next one. That may be the reason I've been going back and back over the last 25 years. Yeah, Dave, let me ask you about that. Because I remember uh, meeting, I guess it was uh, the Wounded Warriors. I guess, uh, Prince Harry, I think, had sponsored something, a, a, an expedition across Antarctica. And they were preparing for the darkness and you know, the silence and so on. What is it about, about that continent that so few of us have been to? That still that is so remarkable, and what what do you take away from it? How do you describe it to someone who's never been there? That's a great question, and Antarctica tends to mean something different for everybody, and it's a very challenging place to explain to somebody who hasn't been there. But for me, as a person, I find it's the sheer scale of Antarctica where things are 
bigger. Ice is massive and you, it demands a mental shift to fully understand. You have to take yourself from what you know and open your mind to things that are huge. That could be a valley filled with king penguins or chinstrap penguins. It could be sailing your ship into the center of a flooded volcano. It could be going to the Weddell Sea and taking your vessel in amongst, as I said, block-sized tabular icebergs that are actually moving with waves, currents, and winds. So it's like a shifting game, but it's absolutely beautiful. It's challenging. Um, and when it all works out, when Mother Nature opens the door and the sun rises and and the ice takes on the color of the the sun, the low sun, it's just something that is difficult to explain, but it has a serious effect on everybody. And I've taken thousands of people uh, and shown them in different ways, scientists, travelers, explorers. They tend to come back saying that that was the most incredible journey of their lives. And it's consistent. So there must be something special for everybody. A very last question to you, just as as this has been discovered, your lasting thoughts on 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 just how important this 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 has been this week has been in the grand history of of Shackleton and his uh, and his ship I think to me it's like the final chapter in a really great book um we we've done so much we made an IMAX film we followed uh, Shackleton through his mountains we built a replica James Caird lifeboat uh, similar to his and sailed it around these things have been going on adventurers have been doing these things for some time now and the one last piece of the puzzle was to find the endurance, uh, to see where it could be, what it looks like. And we always thought it was one of the most extreme challenges ever. We never thought that it could happen so quickly and, and just with such clarity as to show the actual vessel itself. And now that we've seen that, I think the story is just ripe for the picking for the general person to pick up and begin to understand. So kudos to all the adventurers who are down there. Congratulations wholeheartedly um, from everybody who knows Antarctica. This is a monumental achievement, and it's just a great final chapter to a wonderful story. Dave German, thank you so much for your, for your insight and your time tonight. Welcome back from your latest trip. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to share this with people. 